putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a Ladies mission and gentlemen, from God. Can I please have your attention? Oh, this is gonna be fun. We can stand late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making what? Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I'm not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. I can, you can see Russia from my house. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, we, um, like drink box water bottle. I don't know. The proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. Here come the players. Champions. 
my number. Can you believe it? And they quickly uh, off to Muskegon, Michigan, uh, the lowest minor league team. But I did, uh, I just found that picture. I'm so happy because I can prove that I actually was in the Montreal Canadiens organization (laughs) went to the training camp. Now, there's someone, we did a little bit of research online, and you can't believe everything you read, but one thing online said that you signed with Montreal, like, at a really early age. Did you sign a contract at a really early age with them? Well, well, everybody did, because they were sponsored teams. If you played in Winnipeg, chances are you're going to sign a, a C form, which tied you to, uh, they would be Chicago. In, in Regina, I, you know, at 14, you sign this, C card to play for the Regina Pats, the oldest uh, junior team in all of Canada. They're affiliated with Montreal, and somehow they got that C form transferred to the big team. I mean, they they obviously outlawed it once the draft began in the 60s. But, yeah, that's the way they did it. So I was tied up with them. How old were you? You were 14? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So let's... Let, let's talk right, about I that. I signed my first contract. Sorry, I signed my first contract. I got to get this in. I I was a letter carrier in Regina in the summer, and I loved it. <laughs> and when I when Montreal, I you know back then I didn't even know that I had been released or traded or I think it was I was traded for Dennis Dejordi. I was in a throw-in. but anyway, I got a call from this lawyer. Said, "Hey, you know you're with the Islanders?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, um, they want to offer you a contract." I said, "Well, certainly." And anyway, so when he sent it to me, it was in the middle of my mail route i was home for lunch and i have a picture of me signing my first nhl contract uh in my regina mail carrier uniform and i'm pretty proud of that as well that is awesome i had never heard that story before that that's great and so you joined you had some good years you won a cup in 1980 and uh talk about your time with the islanders and, and playing for al arbor well you know there's just so many wonderful things that that fell into place for me and much of it, I, I believe now, was divine intervention. Because I'm, you know, I was an okay junior. I went to college because I knew I wouldn't probably make the NHL. I better get something else to rely on. Uh, you know, I wasn't big. I, I was okay. You know, but um, uh, it, it changed when I went to Montreal. I'll just tell you this: I saw Rogi Vashon who just won the cup, and you know, this is really true in our faith too. I looked down, and I'm at that training camp where I told you I, I got to play one exhibition game. And I said, okay, I'm not original. I probably, there's not a, a special way, a secret way that I can make the NHL. But Rogi Vashon has done it. Now, if I can just learn how to imitate everything he does in every situation, maybe, and I work at it, maybe I could make it. And you guys, that's exactly what happened. For four days of training camp, I watched Rogi Vashon's every move. And then when I got sent to the minor leagues, I just tried to perfect it. That's another story. But anyway, so. The thing with the Islanders, the world hockey came in. Uh, there was some unusual drafts. We got uh, Brian Trache and, and Johnny Tanelli. Uh, you know, they well, no, what happened was they, the the 18 year olds, because of the world hockey, some of them were going to the world hockey. And there was a lawsuit that says the NHL can't restrict us to come into the draft at 20. At 18, we can go to war. We're adults. And so for that one year, they lowered. You can imagine they lowered it two years. So all the players who would have been drafted two years later were now thrown in this draft. And uh, Bill Torrey and his scouting staff got some great players out of that. Clark Gillies yeah. got a uh, reborn. 
anyway, so we had a great bunch of young guys, Danny Potvin, of course. And then we had Al Arbor, who, guys, uh, you know, there's coaches that know the game and can do all the coaching from the bench and in practice, but they have this this people touch, these people skills that just go beyond just who they are. And Al was loved, literally loved by his players. And I can't say I ever played for another coach. Some of the players liked him, but they did not love uh, them like we loved Al Arbor. And so it was a real stroke of luck that I was able to play there. That's great. And, and, and can you tell me, I've heard a story about sitting on the bench in a game against Philadelphia and you were hungry during that game. Do you, do you remember that game? It had something to do with M&Ms. Do you remember anything about that? Of course. When I was the backup, I sat next to Gordy Lane, a good defenseman, and he always had some chocolates in there and he had some M&Ms. And so I said, Hey, give me some of those M&Ms, you know, <laughs> a whistle or something. I put them in my blocker. You know, and there was, a, I would say, maybe 20, I don't know, 25, whatever, they're in the fingers of the blocker. And then I was watching, and then if Al Arbor was distracted down the other way, I'd take my blocker off, and I'd pour some in my hand and watch. And well, Billy Smith was having a bad night, and he said, Chico, you're in there. I thought, oh, my blocker, it's full of m and And I couldn't, like, turn it over. It's right over me. Get in there. And so I said, all right. So I stuck the blocker on and put the, uh, the other catcher on and went out there. And I always laugh because uh, Eminem's had a, uh, 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 a theme song. Eminem's, they'll mel- melt in your mouth, not in your hands. <laughs> that wasn't true. <laughs> that was <laughs> and it was a mess. But, um, uh, you know, I, I just like to stack a chocolate. I'm a, Chocoholic, and I wanted some. I got caught. Oh, I love that! Did 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 Al Arbor ever find out that you had the chocolate in the, in there? He he might have, you know, because he we were we were a real honest team, and we were telling him stories, and you know, I used to kind of drive him crazy sometimes, <laughs> and uh, he might have, but Al was forgiving. Um, you know, the only thing will happen one time we're in the old Maple Leaf Gardens, and again. I'm supposed to be playing, right? Well, I am playing, but he's given the talk to all the forwards. This is going to be the strategy. This is going to be our game plan. Da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, well, it doesn't really refer to a goalie. I got <laughs> between my feet, the Toronto Sun. And I got it open, and I thought, I'll, I'll just look down and be reading that as he's talking. So he does it. He says, hey, Chico, what did I just say? What did I just say? I said, I got to be honest, Al. I don't know. He says, you're reading that paper. I said, yeah. Okay, you're not playing tonight. Smitty, you're playing. Oh, and, uh, I mean, it was the right thing to do, and it was a good lesson I learned. Uh, but he, he, you know, just tell you, this guy's people in our lives, and it could be pastors, it could be a mentor, it could be someone that's sharing something with you. Al Arbor, when he scolded you or corrected you or even – appeared to be a little emotional about something about you, you never got the feeling that he really disliked you. You know, some of the, what are you doing? You know, sometimes parents get so angry, the child thinks, oh, he, dad doesn't like me. He didn't do it that way. He did it with humor. He said to Denny Potvin, and you've probably heard this, but I remember him saying, you know, and Denny, you, you last night, you know, you're skating around there like you had a piano on your back. And he says, you know, I didn't mind that, but there were some shifts 
you stop to play the piano and didn't even move. And so he had a like uh, that. And, um, and so the guys just loved him. But Denny Potvin told me that he said, I didn't like that guy because he was tough on Denny and Denny needed it. But he said, since my career's been over, he says, I just, I would have never been who I was. And I love that man because he turned him into one of the greatest defensemen of all time. Wow. That's awesome. Now we talked about your food and we talked about eating out of your blocker. Now I know when we did some searches in New Jersey, you used to have a little segment that you'd feature for a couple of years called Chico Eats. And, and, and maybe you can talk a bit about that. You like, it looked like a fun segment. Well, it was a fun segment, tremendous pressure because each night at home, my producer, Roland Dratt says, this is really catching on. So I would have to go around and then just stand there and think, okay, what angle? And I got, it's got to be kind of humorous. And it's, there, there was a lot of pressure, but it might have been, uh, I might have uh, handled pressure uh, there even better than I did on the ice because we did it for two and a half, three years. They had T-shirts. But, you know, I would just go and find an angle and then get some fans involved. And, oh, it was immensely um uh, popular and then i saw since then other sports uh has done some of that too you know incorporated that into their broadcast so you know and and the devils were great teams then so it all kind of came together you know it was it was a, a good time and i got lots of free food and i never <laughs> about that <laughs> never complained about that let's talk about your journey of faith when did you become a believer and 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 just talk about that process well growing up in regina you know mom and dad we went you know the Christmas and Easter and, but there was no focus of prayer, uh, you know, really zeroing in on, on our faith. It was just, you know, we're good people kind of, I guess. And, uh, and then God likes us cause we're, we're pretty good people. And that was fine. But I remember when I was laying a couple times, well, one time I'll tell you one time. And well, first of all, when I was really little, I'm laying in my bed and um, Robinson street there in Regina, looking up at the sky and it, I, I was probably 12 or 13, but you know how you're oblivious. It was the first time I looked up there and I kind of wondered, is there something bigger? I said, God, are you up there? Like, are you really up there? What, what? You know, I just had a presence, a sense that something was up there and bigger. I couldn't sort it out. The other time I was in high school and I had been got drunk and I had this big 49 DeSoto and because I didn't want to go home and get in trouble, I parked it in an alley right behind St. Peter's Church. And I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But again, I'm laying in the back seat there in the morning, wake up and stuff. And again, I got that same presence of like, God, are you there? Are you somebody calling me? But I, I couldn't identify it, you know. So I just went through, I went through life kind of with worldly goals, which most people do playing maybe in the NHL. or I didn't really think I would, but getting to the, I was just kind of oblivious. And then, you know, uh, going through the process of college, minor hockey, a lot of challenges, drinking and uh, gallivanting around, uh, you know, women. It was it was an epidemic and uh, because that was just the culture. And when you went into the pros, it was funny, you guys. There was always like three groups that were recruiting for you. There was the partying group that said, hey, we're going out after practice. You want to come with us? And, you know, they, they were the wilder really going after it. Then there was a group that pick and choose. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. And then there was a really small group of players 
that really would drink socially or whatever, but happily married. And I just remember every every team, I, you had to kind of make a decision just on that. Not not nothing to do with spiritual, nothing to do with Jesus. But so that was my life. And then when we got to 1980, and I was 32, and I my my life was a Cinderella. A couple things happened. Uh, mainly though, inside of me, after I had heard a speaker in Muskegon, like seven years earlier, uh, talk about Jesus. First time he was a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, never heard the stuff he was saying about Jesus, never. And then he said, Hey, if you're interested in hearing more, just raise your hand, which I did, which was like, it was a 50 pound weight. But he says, if you <laughs> just read that, prayer, I was like, I can't get it up there. And anyway, I did, but again, you know, no no earth uh, rumblings or anything. But then as my career unfolded and I got all this early success, but uh, two major things happened in the spring of 1980. Um, one was I wasn't playing as much as I had in the years before. And Smitty was really hot and Billy, the other goalie's playing. So I'm sitting more on the bench. I'm not eating M&Ms. I'm so distraught. I can't even eat, but I'm just feeling like, what's my life going to come to now? I'm getting old. I'm not going to be the hero. I mean, I thought, you know, being the hero of the Stanley Cup playoff, that's the, the secret to life. That wasn't happening. And then during that playoff, I remember coming home early one night after we had played a game and the boys went out and I went with them that came in and my wife was there and she had my daughter uh, dressed. And I said, what's going on? Where, where are you going? I'll never forget this guys. And she said, I don't know where you're going. That's the problem. But if you don't change, she said, you've been so self-centered. It's all about you. You know, you're now you're starting to go out more with the guys. She said, if this is your idea of a marriage, it's not mine. And Holly and I, my daughter, we're going home. And I, for me, it was like, boom, slap in the face. It was like a wake up call. And then uh, I won't make this too long. But then during that period, I got a, um, an invitation from Hockey Ministries, it was actually it was Don Lismer, who I uh, was a teammate with in um, Muskegon. But the the, the uh, brochure was really for professional athletes outreach. And there was football players, basketball, baseball players, and it was this convention. And I remember it was in the spring after the season. But the one thing that stuck out, a couple guys said, Making the decision for Jesus, and, and I knew these guys publicly, so they, they impressed me. And I, they're not going to be liars. They said, the greatest thing I ever did was make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. It changed my life. And it was those short little uh, quips that you see. And I remember thinking, well, let's see. Either these guys are liars, and, and they're, just, they're just trying to lure us into thinking, you know, there's something mm -hmm. out there. I said, or... Is there something there? Again, I was just searching, and I said to my wife, Diane, and she was up for it because our marriage wasn't going in the right direction. We decided to go, and it was a life-changing experience. And during that conference, uh, I remember we're, uh, we're staying at a Marriott in Phoenix. And you know, guys, I had heard on the bench, though, Jesus was kind of talking to me at times saying, you know, you, you think this is the greatest disaster of your life. You're not playing every game. You're not the star. He said, but I could take this disaster and turn it into your greatest victory. I'm kind of hearing that. And then, so anyway, I remember on a Friday or Saturday night, I went back and I said, okay, you coward, Chico. 
Can you can you really make an uh, uh, a concentrated and intentional commitment? Because everybody was saying you got like Jesus is not going to barge into your life. You got to invite him in. And you guys, I remember standing. I could see it right now at the end of the bed, and I'm looking down at the floor. And here's what I knew. I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian or anything. I said, but if I go down on that floor and I pray this prayer, I am afraid that my life is never going to be the same again. Mm. I didn't know what it meant, but you know, leaving the old life or getting out of your comfort zone for most people, that's, that's not an inviting proposition, mm-hmm. but hurting so much and had nothing going in my life. And so I, I remember I, I hit the floor. I started to pray. And like I said, I said, Jesus, I, I don't know what, what I'm doing. I don't, I, I got no process here. I just know that this is, well, you know what the Bible says, the guys tell me this is what I should do. And so I said, I, I really do want to follow you, and I'll give you my best shot. I said, I don't know what that means. But I said one thing to him, gentlemen, that sticks with me today. It's, it's like, I said, okay, ever since I was young, Jesus, that little boy in Regina, I always had a gnawing in my heart. I, I just never felt at peace, comfortable, confident, whatever. It doesn't matter. It was just always there. And I said, could you do me one favor right now, though? Could you bring down some inner peace in in my life and take away that gnawing in my heart? Could you just do that? Like, I wasn't looking for other miracles. And you know, guys, it's like the grace or whatever just filtered down the inner peace. Mm. We thought, wow, like, what is going on? And and then I just made a commitment that, Jesus, I'll do everything I can, whatever that means, however feeble my efforts are. Uh, uh, But so finally, guys, I'll – when I got up off the floor, I absolutely knew without a, a doubt that my life was going to change. And, of course, it did. And so uh, it was a, a very dramatic moment for me. I, I know a lot of people it's not, but for me it was. That's awesome. Talk about Hockey Ministries and Donnie Lismer and, and the impact on your life and, and just the relationship between yourself and Hockey Ministries over the years. Well, Hockey Ministries was the one that sent me that uh, brochure when I was really struggling in 1970, uh, 1980, excuse me. And Donnie Lismer, <clears throat> I mean, he he's, was the founder, and he's just been an incredible uh, ambassador for Jesus. But at that time, some things were cooking. Bobby Richardson from the Yankees, uh, he and uh, a couple other guys had started baseball chapels, right? Football was starting to have chapels, and uh, you, you guys, you, you have no idea the doors slammed when it came to faith in the NHL. Nobody had even acknowledged they were Christians. I remember I said to one person about faith, and they said, you know what, you see those? And then he said, you know, across the street there's that church? You know, that that's where you go for that stuff. But when you mm. come through these doors in here, this is about hockey, right? And there was that separation. So what's going to happen? And then – well, again, divine intervention. So Donnie started doing a bunch of different things. We had hockey camps for kids, which really helped me grow, but he was having some chapels. He was doing a lot of things, and for some reason, there were a bunch of guys, Ryan Walter, Mike Gartner, Eddie Stanowski, uh, Eddie Kia, Jean Pronovo, all these guys, Michelle, there was all these guys. It was like a revival. Mm. And wondered what is going on and of course so then um the summer of 80 when i made that commitment i did a 
hockey school for HMI. And then it just evolved from there. And then, of course, it's now where it's in every junior league in Canada and college and in the NHL. You got to be very careful. Some teams, I'll tell you, one Hall of Fame uh, general manager who they had a chapel in their team before he was hired, he shut it down. Mm -hmm. No, you're not having that. So there's still resistance, and but uh, we have paid enough of our dues in terms of never overstepping boundaries. We haven't had any guys in trouble. We haven't had any fanatics that have, you know, embarrassed the NHL or hockey ministries. So we have a very good reputation, but it's still, it's not like they're opening the doors and yelling, hey, come on in, let's yeah. we'll have a chapel. So you guys know how it works. Yeah, so, we do. Uh, but, I was just going to say yeah. that that uh, I've been a chaplain with Hockey Ministries for uh, coming up 16 years now, and uh, we, we've had it here in Belleville with the Belleville Bulls, and now now we're the Senators organization. But there's a guy that I knew back in the day, and I, I've got his jersey here, uh, come to the games in Belleville and played here, and you may know him. And uh, I don't know if you can see that. It's P.K. Subin, and he's a Belleville boy. And uh, so uh, you get to see players, but there's been doors that have been opened because of folks like yourself, Chico, that have uh, been faithful, and we, we're thankful for that. And uh, I know that there's there's lots of doors that have been opened through hockey ministries through the years because of folks like yourself that, that stood up and made a difference. Well, thank you. You know what's discouraging, though? And, and I've seen it, and you guys know. It's in every walk of life. But a lot of these young players who went to chapel in junior mm-hmm. got to the NHL. And, and their faith has waned. They just, they just hasn't continued because there is a cost. There's a separation yeah. of, of certain things. And, but it's really hard because, because yeah. the world now for hockey players gives them so much or promises them so much. Uh, and it, it's really hard to, to overcome that. So it, it's been a bit of a diff, disappointing situation for some players not for others some have come into the nhl just as committed as they were in junior but you know that's life right i mean and, and you see it in churches everywhere and maybe talk a bit about um i know there's a bunch of retired folks uh that are uh, hockey ministries has a zoom i, I understand uh, every couple of weeks with some of the retired players and and a time to encourage each other maybe you can talk about the do you participate in the in the uh, nhl alumni zooms yeah, I, I've got on Tuesday. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Doc Emmerich, who in the United States is an icon in terms of a hockey announcer. He won seven Emmys, and, and Doc's been a Christian since he was young, and he's been a friend of HMI. Um, but what I like is we we have players being interviewed by another friend or teammate, and we we try to get them to really dig into their hearts and why 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 did you why why did you say yes to Jesus? And it's interesting. Like Ryan Walter and uh, um, Mike Gartner were playing in Washington. Jean Pronovo said to them, this plane goes down. You've heard it. Christians have used it. This plane goes down. Um, you know where you're going to be? And that fear of death scared them. Barry Melrose, who uh, is a Canadian and made believe that he's going to be doing hockey next year, he flat out said, hey, I, I was afraid of dying. Then you've got other people who came through same maybe drug or alcohol abuse. Like me, it was more of a personal crisis of 
no foundation. Like I didn't know who I was, what I was basing my life on. So you've got all these great players. And, you know, Paul Henderson's on there. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul a fascinating uh, testimony where he fought it too, even though he was the greatest Canadian, you know, in terms of what he did for the country. But, you know, it's interesting. On that Zoom, we got Paul Henderson, who scored the biggest goal for Canada in their history, as most people are too young to remember that. But also Mark Johnson is also a believer who coaches the University of Wisconsin the women. Yep. He scored. One of the biggest goals for the U.S. Uh, miracle of 1980. So we are laden with outstanding um, That's cool. athletes and hockey players. But I got to tell you this, the most spiritual of them all, yeah. the goalie. Oh, the yeah. Goalie. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> That's what they keep saying. The goalies have a certain fraternity about them. And um, so you've been broadcasting. Well, we're going to jump back a little bit. We've been talking about your face. We've been talking about uh, a bit of your career. Uh, after your hockey career was over and you got into broadcasting with the great Doc Emmerich, um, talk about that that friendship and how it formed and uh, just what he's meant to you. Well, you know, when you hook up with somebody who's who's kind of, like I said, Roby Vashon or someone who had done it, like Doc prepared oh, so much for his whole life, really. He's got an incredible testimony. But, um, and so he's the show. It's like, I don't care how good a winger you are, Yari Curry. When you're on Wayne Gretzky's line, you're second. I don't care if you score five goals, you're still second to that man. And that's kind of what I felt with Doc. So I said, okay, like I'm his winger. Doc, tell me, tell me, give me some insight. He says, Chico, I'm just going to tell you a couple of things. He said, the one thing about broadcasting hockey, you're doing it for the fans, and the fans are coming because they want to be excited or they are excited about the game and they want to be entertained. He said, just bring enthusiasm. (laughs) If it's a cross ice dump in the other corner, talk about, Oh, what a cross ice dump. It was perfect for his teammate. He said, just bring enthusiasm. And then he said, I'd also like you to talk to some of the players, get some insight in the morning skate, bring a couple anecdotes. And, um, and I was brutal. Honestly, I'm not just being humble. I was terrible the first two years. I almost had a nervous breakdown, but Doc would carry me just like Wayne did to some of his teammates. And then we became really, really good friends. And then, you know, we found out our faith was, was very similar and we could talk about that besides hockey. And, you know, it was just a a wonderful uh, experience with Doc. And so, you know, I, I said to Doc, a couple of divine interventions that I had no hand in was one was just making the NHL and playing for the Islanders and winning a cup. And second was working with the greatest announcer of all time for wow. 14 years. That's How a, did that happen? I, um, that's, you know, so uh, doc is, you know, he, he's just a great ambassador for hockey, but also for Jesus. That's awesome. Uh, now, we understand you were honored by the Devils recently. You've been with them for, for quite a long time. And we have a letter from one of our listeners. Uh, his name is Lori. And he says that uh, you got a pontoon boat. And he would like to know uh, if your lake is big enough to handle the large pontoon boat that was given to you. This <laughs> is from an anonymous uh, yeah. listener named Lori. Yeah. No, it's working very, very well. But the funny thing was, they didn't give me a trailer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I cried and moaned so much 
I finally embarrassed them into giving me a trade. <laughs> up to the St. Lawrence River, through the, you know, Great uh, Lake. Anyway, they were very generous, both the team and, and Madison Square Garden. But, you know, like in life, it's got a railing, and there are some restrictions. And, you know, I've heard that that Lori guy, he's a really malcontent. He causes a lot of grief. Uh, he would not be allowed on the boat. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. He's not okay. Well, that, that's great. <laughs> if you knew the guy, you really don't want to hook up uh, with him because he's, he, he, you can't trust him. Uh, but I'll just say one thing about the, the pontoon boat. And this is true. So the first time I launch it, I'm pushing it up the dock and we have bald eagles on our lake. Beautiful lake. This is no, and, they put on the front of the pontoon, Glen Chico Resh, New Jersey Devils. They really splashed it on. And I know some of the, the people on the lake said, that guy's full of himself. <laughs> I need to put it on. But so you got this going on, and this is nowhere to lie. I'm not embellished. So we push it back, and I see the bald eagle up above us. And all of a sudden, you guys, he starts diving. This is nowhere to walk. <laughs> At the time, but I'm thinking, he's a Ranger fan. He hates <laughs> <laughs> But what he did, this is no word like maybe 15 feet out the back, he swooped down and he caught a, uh, he grabbed a walleye. You guys call them, uh, what? Walleyes? No, what's what's the good eating fish in Canada? Pickerel. 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 He grabbed this pickerel out and it was so big. I mean, it looked big. And I watched him and he had to fly across the lake and I'm watching him. And he can't get any lift. And he's getting me the shore. I'm not making this up. And I'm thinking, okay, buddy, what now? You know, you talked about all of us, our eyes being bigger than what we need when we eat food. Like, yeah. you know, eating and sick and helping. I thought, okay, you got you got um, selfish there. And he got to the close to the shore. He had to drop it. He could not get that food. <laughs> That that really happened, and I thought that that was good. He must have been a Ranger fan. Yeah. <laughs> he blew it. Well, I I just I also want to tell a story. I had I had gone and and seen you speak at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Hockey Ministries had you as a special guest, and I had some players with me, and we were watching right on the big screen. I don't know if you remember on the big screen, right in the Hockey Hall of Fame, they were playing a video, and it was of you arguing and getting pretty colorful on a, a goal that was called a goal, but it, was a, it wasn't a goal. And I remember the players that came with me, they were looking at it like, look at this goalie. He's just, he's incensed. And you were right beside me go, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I had Malcolm Subin with me, Jordan Ruby. I had a bunch of different guys. And then you told the story. And, and what is the story? What were you trying to explain during that during that interaction, and if you haven't seen it, get on the get on the to our listeners, get on YouTube and check it out because it's it's a great segment. Just ch- check out Chico Resh goal, and and what what were you trying to explain to the refs? Non goal, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. non goal. Sorry, non goal. Yeah, <laughs> let's be clear about that. I, I do remember you there at the Hockey Hall of Fame and bringing those guys. I was really honored, um, you know, to meet those guys. But what happened was this is so ironic. The last home game. The guy who's walking through the um, corridor, he comes up. It's Robbie Fatorik, who's going to be in that video because he's <laughs> the one who got credit for the goal. But he's coming up to me, and I said, Robbie, why didn't you tell him? And he, 
Oh, Chico, you're still worried about that. But um, <laughs> we hadn't beaten the Rangers, and we were ahead because I looked it up, the summary of the game. And we're ahead, and it's in the middle of the second or whatever, and playing pretty good. Robbie Fittor goes from forehand to backhand, and he backhands it up. And, you know, you know your surroundings, wherever you guys work, you know. I heard a ding. I look back. It's bouncing off the ice, and it didn't go in. We're in <laughs> Madison Square Garden. What do you think the goal judge did? Think he's not a homer? <laughs> and then Brian Lewis was a referee saying, goal, goal. I said, Brian, it wasn't a goal. And then I'm, he's not listening. And what I was doing there, and this is, I know this is crazy, but you know the frozen, right? And they're sliding on ice that has snow. I showed Will Norris, the linesman, you see the water droplets? You see them right there. The rest of the crossbar was dry. Right there is where it hit. He looked at me. Like, you think I'm going to do that? But as you'll see from the replay, and then they, they came back and beat us. And, um, you know, I mean, I was pretty, I'm was i a pretty calm guy, but, you know, when you play uh, back in the day, like you just had to come with emotion. And, you know, I heard a few times I threw my glove and, and would lose it and, People look at me like they. People think I started that fight in Montreal between the Canadians and the, the Flyers in 1987, the brawl to end all brawls. Um, that wasn't really my fault either. <laughs> you know what? We had a guest on the show, Lori Boschman, and he said all his 2,200 penalty minutes, none of them were his fault either. <laughs> That's what he suggested. Yeah. <laughs> So in closing, uh, Chico, I just wanted to ask, what, what advice do you give to someone who's really trying to explore their faith and trying to, to think about their, uh, you know, think about Jesus and to put their trust in him? What kind of advice do you give to them? Well, I mean, you somehow have to open your mind. If you have preconceived ideas, uh, you're starting from a really tough position because you will, whatever is presented to you as truth, you may defute right away because you've got this in your head that no, no, I, I've, I, I've been around. I, I don't believe that. And da, 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 da. What was nice for me was my slate was clean. I knew nothing about Christianity or following Jesus. I didn't have any preconceived uh, ideas, but I think the biggest thing in life is whatever you're doing, you've got to look below the surface. You know, our lives are lived. We walk around. We listen to the news or even a hockey game. I talk to fans. They see the surface part of the game. Like, that guy made a good play. But they don't really know the systems underneath. They don't know why one guy is a really better goal scorer. They don't go below. And so I would just say to people, um, try to clear your mind and say, I know nothing, but I'm going to be a researcher. I'm going to ask. And what I did was, I looked at the promises of Jesus, like that inner peace and purpose. I said, Jesus, you promised me inner peace and purpose. You're going to, because I was a big-time sinner, you're going to help me eventually feel that it wasn't good that I did that, but I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to be bound by those, uh, depending on you know the person where he's coming. But the greatest thing is, if you can say to everybody else, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research it myself, and then use your brain and start to find out things and say, okay, Jesus, like, show me something here. I'm, I'm struggling with, okay, let's say, you know, somebody says this isn't true. And, you know, you got that whole group that say, well, what is the truth? And I, I would just keep talking. Like, my, 
praying on ceasingly, as I'm doing right now, I could talk, talk. I would just say, okay, what's going on there, Jesus? Okay, I just saw that guy. I just had that interaction. It didn't seem like I, 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 he liked me. Did, did I, whatever. I would just talk to him, and I still do. And it's, it's like he'll just keep showing you stuff. But you can't go in with your preconceived ideas. And I think, you guys, that's why I made the NHL. I didn't have any preconceived ideas that I was a good goalie. I did not. I said, I better work hard and smart or I'm going to get nowhere. And I better find out what's going on under the surface. There's all this stuff going on that we don't see, you know, sort of the on-scene world, uh, the spiritual side. And then the same thing happened with my faith. I just wanted to go below what I had heard, what I just saw. I mean, if you want, if you want to really not be a Christian, just look at some Christians and you'll pick apart their hypocrisy. Say, well, look at that. That's it's, that's not real. Look at that guy. But if you do that, then you're you're defeated already. So I didn't have any of that. I just never put my faith in men. I would listen, and they could inspire me. Hockey players, uh, you know, and and they did. We had a lot of great uh, role models. Um, so I would just say it will be the greatest, most fun journey of your life hmm. when you start to uh, get revealed to you and you start experiencing things. You thought that I never knew that was part of life. Hmm. I, I never looked at it that way before. It becomes, you, you know, you're just on fire because hmm. you're saying, wow, why has this been kept secret from me? And hmm. You know, as you know, you guys, when I pray now, I pray, oh, Lord, Holy Spirit, please have an impact on them. Because I truly believe if the Holy Spirit, and I don't know how this works. Bosch and I, uh, friends, have talked about it. The Holy Spirit literally calls some people, and they can't say no. Like me, I don't think I could have said no at a point. So, but I think, you know, get on the ride. Like, have a good time. Get on the ride. You don't have to. You don't have to go on a street corner and start saying, hey, I'm a Christian. And no, you just do it slowly within your own framework and learning stuff and, and, and then researching. And, you know, really, the other thing is just thinking. And the last thing is for me, and I was telling you guys, I love the music. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell, talk about music. Yeah. Okay. Well, just because my mom and dad, I grew up in the prairies in Mooshtar, Regina. And Grand Ole Opry and everybody in my family danced, but I couldn't dance. But anyway, <laughs> I just couldn't. But music was always there. And I remember the, the lyrics, and they would stick in your head. So when I became a Christian, you know, I started to listen to, like, you know, Amy Grant, the popular song singers of the time, female and, and male. And you would hear the same things over, like Zach Williams. I don't know if you know Zach Williams. Yeah. Chain break. Yeah. You know. You know where, you know, all my sins are um, cast away. I mean, things that that are scripturally sound, but they repeat it. And then when you know you were there, you sing it with gusto. You know, all my pain, fears, and shame, gone when Jesus calls my name. That's another song. But I, I remember it. That's it. All my shame, my fears, my my chains, my sins washed away. So I think music is a great way, a non-intimidating way for people to grow in their faith and maybe to help other people. Just say, like I sent my sister who wasn't um, 
you know, her, I, I don't know where she was at, but I sent her uh, Dolly Parton and Zach Williams, and maybe you've heard it. There was Jesus, and it's an incredibly powerful song. Amy, I mean uh, Dolly Parton, but there was Jesus through it all. And my, I sent that to my sister, and she's just struggling something with her husband. She's, I play that all the time. Mm, she's not going to listen to me preaching, but yeah. she'll listen. And so anyway, music to me was a big uh, That's awesome. factor in growing. Have you ever sang a Zach Williams song on a live podcast before? That was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great. <laughs> well, listen, I want to, uh, I want to thank, I want to thank you. You guys know this you know the new group, We the Kingdom? Yeah. The oh, young yeah. group. They're big time. I just fell in love with them. So well, they're good well, too. Yeah. You're right up on this. You're right. Like, this is a big thing for you. Yeah. I mean, because I can shout it out. I can <laughs> raise my hands, right? And sing along. And <laughs> it's exactly what I'm feeling. And um, do you play We you know, the so Kingdom on the. Do you play that, the Zach Lane's We the Kingdom on the pontoon? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, we got her blaring out on the lake there. That's awesome. You know, and, uh, well, I want to thank you, Chico, for coming on the program with us tonight and sharing your heart, sharing your story. It has been an honor to hear uh, how God has used you, and we just wish you the best. And we're going to get back to that person who wrote that letter about the pontoon. We'll, <laughs> we'll write him personally, let him know about about the but answer. He, yes. And, and, you know, I want to say I'm sorry I dominated. Never in my whole hockey <laughs> Did I ever dominate an hour like I have here? No. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to talk. I no, it's awesome. For the Edge of Tom Foolery, my name is Bruce Mackey. I'm Bob Morris. I'm Steve Height. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>